1: My name is Damien Brown, and welcome to Deep Roots. And welcome back to episode 5 of my solo and unsupported row across the Atlantic Ocean. Day 9. The biggest conditions the race has seen in 10 years. Not that I knew that. I was just trying to deal with the moments, all the moments that were coming at me, trying to decipher them and trying to make decisions that were efficient and correct and smart and intelligent. And of course I was succeeding and I was failing. The night before, I went to bed because rowing at night was a fucking nightmare. I couldn't make out my arse from my elbow. There was no moonlight. I could hardly see a couple of metres away from me. I was getting smashed by every, like, I don't know, third or fourth wave and just really battling, battling. And I remember just calling in the night because my bed was so close. And it was so frustrating and I felt like I was getting nowhere and I felt like I'd had a good day on the oars. Little did I know actually I had my best day ever on the oars um, and uh, that I was ever going to have uh, to this point on day eight. But I felt that it was, It was time just to to call it for the night. So the usual. um, Tied things up. Went to bed. Can't remember exactly when I woke up. When I did wake up. Kind of crawled. Like. Reverse limboed my creaking body out of the small little hatch. Went about my little routine to get ready. Sat down. Trainers on. Grabbed. My oar on my left, unrigged it uh, in the water, went to grab the one on my right, swung my arm out, and there was nothing there to catch. I went at it again, nothing there. Obviously, it was like my head was on it like a shot, it was on a swivel, and there was no oar there. It was gone, and all that was hanging was the button, which is like the kind of uh, blocker on the oar that sits against the gate where you put the oar um, into two two row. Honestly, this really had dark consequences for me. Even here now saying it, I'm like kind of questioning why? Why would it have such dark consequences? I'm not... It was all... The, and even this moment here when I lost you, it wasn't like it just stemmed. Or it wasn't like it just, I went from a state of kind of excitement for a new day to, you know, a negative, tough, dark, heavy, destructive place. It was over the next 24 hours that I went on some sort of Where my state was, if you think of a trough, it just deepened and deepened and deepened and deepened and deepened until, um, I was able to get a little bit of clarity on why, and then put some actions in place to mental actions, which I'll get to, um, that were uplifting and that changed my mindset and attitude and focus and um, just gave me clarity on the situation. So I take it right back to the start of the race. Um, When I turned up in La Gomera, there was two new oars that I'd never seen that I'd ordered through uh contact for um as my spare set so I'd only had one set through my training and then I'd been sold these set like I mean um as in by a salesman sold them literally um without really ever having eyes on them and my thinking was that I'm never going to fucking use them anyway so whatever I just need them for the compliance inspections um I've no intention of using them so they'll do and they're reasonably they're good quality and they're a good make and, um, you know, worst case scenario, they do have to be, um, employed Well, they'll do a job, but I had no intention of ever using them. I really liked, um, the pair I trained with and as far as I was concerned, they were going to last the course until day nine. So what happened? Well, obviously I lost an hour, but why, right? Well, for a few days until that point, and if I remember correctly, I'd had some issues with that with both oars actually um, in my training. You know, I'm, I'm I'm a relatively strong guy, and I put a lot of force through uh, the oars. And what was happening in my training was that the buttons were coming um loose and kind of almost shimmying through with the force up the up the oar so um actually lengthening the oar but then obviously become lengthening the amount of ore that will go in the water but then um, just throwing me all out of sync um because one oar would be slightly longer than the other and so the process with that obviously is to sit down take the toolbox out a couple of screws that need to be loosened uh, on the button and then it needs to be measured and put back in place so that's what i did the first few days um during my training and then the first few days um on the ocean that they started to wriggle up i just went through the that long and drawn out process but my ambitions got a little bit in the way then and um I started to tell myself a story It's probably unfair actually to blame it on my ambitions But I started to tell myself a story that I was wasting time And by going through that diligent process To replace the button where it should be and make sure it's tight So what I ended up doing kind of around day six day seven day eight when it happened is i grab a hammer out of the toolbox and i would just knock it back down the ore into place because it was still tight enough Um, it would last but it was lazy and that laziness ended up costing me an ore when um, on the night of day eight and the morning of day nine this storm rolled in and pounded the boat all night and i wake up and then the button (laughs) is still attached because i was i clipped that in at night um to uh to the boat through um a lanyard So I had these little lanyards that I was able to clip in. But that was still there. But the oar had, you know, through the force of the waves and uh, been battering the boat all night, the oar had uh, wriggled its way into a um, thinner part. um, Or the button had wriggled its way into a thinner part of the oar shaft. And then it just slid out. And I presume it's still out there to this day, floating around somewhere in the Atlantic. But that fucking that ended up rocking me really bad because I believe my standards are extremely high and I promote that in myself. I tell myself all the time, my standards are exceptional. But they weren't. The reality was different. They were sloppy they were lazy and I was telling myself a lie and on some level, what I believe from this and from seeing and witnessing this in the past, in myself, in other areas what I believe is that on some level, we know even though we're telling ourselves a different story we know and it creates a disturbance because our values and our actions are not aligned. And that is why I went into this, I plunged into this 24 hours of really negative, dark, destructive thinking. And it wasn't until I got clarity on that through some really deep reflection and analysis of my actions just with a brutal honesty I just was not living a value I told myself and believed I had and I had been telling myself I was and it wasn't until I was able to recognize that and hold myself accountable to that action and change it, obviously, reset and change it and do things a bit differently from there on. Uh, And once I did that, it just lifted me, it lifted my spirits, I was just in a much better place. I was reset, refocused and had raised my standards by the recognition and by demanding more of myself through that brutal, honest filter uh, and that changed and and that just I took ownership I wasn't I could have easily I could have easily looked for somebody else to blame or something else to blame I could have blamed mother nature I could have blamed blamed the ore manufacturer I could if I want like I would have been incorrect in doing this but I had this was a choice available to me to hide behind my own actions but I didn't. It was through that honest analysis I held myself accountable but I didn't. It was through that honest analysis that I recognized it was my fault and I took ownership of my mistakes, my attitudes, my poor mindset, my poor standards, my um, misalignment of um, values and actions and I held myself accountable to that standard, to a higher standard and demanded that I would do better. And that just changed my state totally. Um, And because it was the truth, that was absolutely the truth. It was totally down to me and my uh, laziness and looking for an easy way or a way to cut corners. So I'm gonna play the clip from day nine so you can get a audio on the moment and what was going through my mind then. Enjoy. Day nine. Um, a bit of a ball lick of a day, to be honest with you. Woke up this morning to find um, I was minus an oar um, and this threw me off um, straight away, the last few days have been going well, rowing was good, getting some good mileage um, and um, I knew straight away that like not having that oar was just going to complicate things beyond measure, um, yeah, like I have a, obviously I have a spare set but I've never used them before I uh, wasn't a big fan of them since the minute I saw them. Um and uh just the shape of them or whatever and uh Yeah, it's been um been a day just getting used to that. Uh my own fault. Um you know, when I analyze um I've been doing on the boat and that there's been sloppy very sloppy elements to it you know a little bit of uh um that'll do attitude uh, instead of being really really strict and really um high standard about everything i do and i suppose that's a manifestation of uh, going back two or three months even in my training and that just been a little bit sloppy So it was a good kick up the hole. Um, but uh, yeah, an expensive one. And you know what, it's not your day, it's not your day. So um, a few hours later, I was having a number two on uh, on deck and I uh, got, <laughs> you, know, you know it's not your day when you're having a shit and uh, you get hit by uh, uh, six foot swell. Or six meters swell, even. Um, I mean, uh, there's no, there's no, nothing you can do about that but laugh. Because uh, if you ever want to feel helpless, uh, have your pants around your ankles uh, on a bucket in the middle of the Atlantic and watch a, a massive swell gathering speed and know it's going to crash on top of you. Uh, <laughs> So yeah, that was pretty messy, and uh, and took a while to to clean up. But uh, listen, got it done. So um, yeah, what else shit happened today? <laughs> it's one of those days. Nothing was going. Nothing's going right. I won't let this sort of crap get in my way you know you have to you won't get into out here for for nothing you have to keep fighting against it like the 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 winds and the the waves and the currents are relentless thankfully they've been in our favor quite a lot but you know even today when i was moving across them quite a bit and getting you know battered and soaked and really struggling with the new oars, you just have to keep grinding away and keep fighting and never give up and just um and uh, yeah, and, and just kind of dial in on the, the processes a little bit and stop feeling sorry for yourself, and um, and that's what I'll continue to do. You know, uh, um, take responsibility for uh, you know losing the oar and take responsibility for being sloppy. You know, when I look around, I could have lost other stuff last night on the deck. Even you know, it was a wild night and. Uh, but I could have lost my trainers, they weren't tied down, I could have lost a load of stuff that would have made things a lot, you know, more complicated, so, you know, completely my own fault, and, uh, you know, take it on the chin, and just, just keep striding forward, and not fucking let that shit get you down, you know, um, and figure out how to use the new horse to the best of your ability, and, uh, Yeah, and just grind, 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 never give up, keep fucking going, keep going, keep going, keep going. Um, And uh, yeah, we're going to get there eventually, man, Nothing, 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 nothing will stop me getting across this ocean. It seems like a small thing to me now, but it obviously wasn't at the time. It really was a big blow i never really took to those oars either the Sawyer ones that i used from day nine onwards i much preferred the other ones which were um, XL. and uh, i will <laughs> i will make sure the next time i row an ocean that um, both sets of oars the spare and the uh, action ones or the expedition ones are are exactly the same and set up the same way and I will make sure as I did from day nine that um, I don't get lazy and I hold myself accountable in those moments and go through the process no matter how long it takes um, to do it right first time and stop cutting corners because it ends up in you being in a state like that and your race been compromised and you know as i said in that um that clip there was other things i could have lost that weren't tied down well enough that night um so my shoes but also the seat like if i had lost the seat like the seat was lanyard um lanyarded to the boat but i know uh that the knot wasn't good enough that i tied and i knew it when i was tying it um that you know a ferocious wave could have easily taken that away. Um now it got a hell of a lot better after th- <laughs> after this day, but if I would lost that that would have like I mean oh, that would have completely like derailed everything. I'm not sure how I would have fashioned something. That doesn't bear thinking about. Um so it was a tough lesson and it really it really was a tough 24 hours. And I was very glad to and bring myself out of it through that honest reflection, but it was nowhere near as tough for 24 hours as two other boats were having. Very close to me, there was um, a duo uh, called O2, two guys from Egypt called Omar Samra and Omar Noir uh, or Noor, excuse me. And there was a duo or a pair from the UK called max torp and chris williams in a boat called our team called team tenzing they were both i think oh two the two um guys from egypt the two Omars. they were about 50 miles ahead of me if i remember correctly and max and chris were a little bit ahead of them because they were leading the pairs at that stage they were flying it and both of those guys capsized that night in that storm that had taken away my oar that i was feeling very sorry about my uh, very sorry um for myself about but compared to what these two guys were or these four guys were going through it was literally nothing it was like a blip um so oh, the two omars uh capsized and their boat didn't self-write so ocean rowing boats are designed to self-write because the chances are they're going to capsize at some point because you're going to kind of face a storm or two on a crossing so the way that works is um, there's ballast underneath the uh, waterline on the deck and then there's two cabins um, on either side of an ocean rowing boat if you've never seen one There's your living cabin, whatever you want to call that, uh, where all your electrics are, where your batteries are, where you sleep and where um, you keep everything that you need kind of on the daily. And then there's a small, much smaller cabin on the other end for storage. And as long as those two cabins are sealed, uh, their hatches are um, completely sealed and tight, watertight, airtight, they when the boat is turned over they act as air pockets or they are air pockets Uh, and all the weight then is on top with the ballast so the ballast is normally um, water you buy um, 50 liters of water and you put that in underneath in these little compartments underneath the deck spread it out and most of the newer boats take about 50 the older boats the heavier boats uh, the wooden boats take about 150 liters of water so when it's capsized that ends up on top and the two air pockets are bottom so the boat has no choice but to either go um kind of close to 180 degrees as it can and then come back down around and uh, re um and ride itself or if the wave is strong enough that knocks it over it'll go all the way over 360 degrees because the weight's on top and the two air pockets on the bottom the lads when they capsized their boat did not self-right for whatever reason i think it's a bit of a mystery even to this day um and then the two omars deployed their life raft and that didn't um, employ that didn't inflate so now remember i'm talking about six seven eight even bigger eight nine meter waves here like and these guys had to spend um, the night in that, in those conditions, 25, at least a minimum 25 knot winds, 30 winds, thirty knot winds um, on top of the hull. So on the rounded bottom of, um, they had an R20, which is a, a boat made by Rannock. Um It's their old design, a very fast boat. So it's kind of a rounded bottom boat. It has no keel, no kind of V shape. So they had to, sp- don't don't ask me how they did it, but they had to spend um, seven hours until they were picked up by a tanker. Um, and if I, again, if I remember the story correctly, um, and it is a pretty amazing story that's been made into a movie that was um, going, was at the Cannes Film Festival a year ago, I think, called Beyond the Raging Sea. So if you get a chance, check it out um i still have to see it myself but um if i remember correctly from the stories i heard afterwards that the tanker that picked them up um missed them on the first pass it took about seven hours for for them to get to them and then uh, i had to come round. and it takes like these things do not have a small turning circle particularly well in a storm and then they had to come back around again uh and coincidences of all coincidences it was actually a egyptian boat with an egyptian crew uh that was heading back towards i think north africa somewhere if not even the med so they were incredibly kind of if you want it's probably unfair to, to use the word lucky but it was just a massive coincidence that the um that uh, it just happened to be an egyptian crew that was picking them up because you know by maritime law once you um send an sos or your EPIRB or your plb um a personal locating beacon is switched off uh, switched on excuse me or deployed uh it goes to um Falmouth in the uk and then they coordinate a um search and rescue And the nearest boat uh, has to um, aid in that search and rescue. So just happened to be these guys. Could have been any boat from any nationality or multiple nationalities. It just happened to be a captain and crew of Egyptians. Um, So the lads got picked up eventually. um, Well, left their boat out there, of course. Um, I've no idea whatever happened to it. Uh, Those things are incredibly valuable as well. Um, They cost about 70 grand, I think sterling so uh, i believe there is a community that watches these AISs, automatic identification systems that show where all boats are or where you can track all boats and if and when they are anywhere near land they get picked up and they're you know they get um stripped you know of anything that's of any value not sure i also know the race um duty officers and the race organizers watch the boats as well and do their best to um, get it back before that happens and try and coordinate with uh with local authorities and local uh locals if it's close enough to land now this was day nine so we were probably you know the lads anyway were close to probably 500 miles away from land at that stage so not too sure what happened anyway and the other boat was uh, Team Tenzing And they just have Like if Timo, If Team Timo O2's Story was Incredible uh, Tenzing's Is just Out of this world How those Boat lads Are still here uh, I'll Never Really Be able to Fathom Or I suppose I'll never be really able to fathom What they went through And nobody will Until you probably have experienced it Which You know Literally Nobody will so they also capsized on uh, the night of day eight and they were flying it. They were leading the pairs and they were on some sort of world record pace. What happened, their boat was um, during the capsize, the batteries in the main uh, cabin, the sleeping cabin came loose and started a fire. And the fire basically burnt Everton, made the cabin... irreparable it was just it was absolutely destroyed actually i think max opened up the cabin you know while it was still like a a furnace or still burning inside there uh, and nearly burnt himself with some sort of like almost like a backdraft when he actually did open it up they had to if i remember correctly they had to eventually They rode these waves like so they had to perform some sort of movement together on the boat to keep the boat from recapsizing. So like it was almost like they had to throw their weight against the side of the boat uh, or the cabin hatch to stop it going over in these crazy conditions that we were all experiencing. And they did that for literally for hours, like something like six or seven hours until they're absolutely exhausted. Had to give up the ghost because of fatigue and then they climbed into the other cabin so they had a traditional shaped boat uh, i think it was an adkins pair or a wood i'm not sure uh and they uh the other cabin i mean i i i would dread i don't think i'd even fit in there on my own literally i i mean it's like a little suitcase it's like i i don't know how the two of them ended up in there for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours after setting off their um ePERB, which actually nearly got away from them if i remember during the capsize i think um they saw it floating away and just somehow in the storm it actually got blown back into one of their out. i think it was max's outreach hands they set that off and then that meant that the you know there was two way to wait a rescue, and then I think they were like in this little suitcase cabin. The two of them, the two big guys, squeezed in there, and they'd have to open up the hatch every now and again, and because um, it was the middle of the night, and flash a laser flare out, and just I mean absolutely poxed lucky that somebody on the bridge of one of the the tanker that ended up the. um, came to rescue them caught a glimpse of it on one of their passes uh, or sorry one of the passes of the laser out of the hatch you know and obviously if you're taking the risk to open up the hatch you're also taking the risk that it could fill with water and then you're you know you don't even have that safe space not that it was I suppose it was a safe space but it wasn't really like anyway the two boys uh, eventually like this I think it was a 250 meter long oil tanker turned up uh, to rescue them or caught it caught the glimpse of the uh, laser and then came by and it nearly crushed the boat. <laughs> oh. And then they threw down um, a rope ladder and if you can imagine now the boat is kind of sliding down the side of the tanker and these boats like these boats are like seven meters long uh, these ocean rowing boats so they're they're little, minuscule little things in comparison to, and sliding down and then you've got waves smashing the other side of the ocean rowing boat against the big tanker and then you've got this wall of um, tanker uh, and you're just trapped in the middle of the two and they're just like bashing and bashing and the lads did an amazing TED talk on this called um, Fire and Water and they were saying that eventually the actual started to work in their favor that like when the wave would come in the boat would actually move up the face of the tanker and then at one stage they were both able to grab on to the rope ladder that had been thrown down but um chris had tied his so chris had burnt his hands or had some issue with his hands so when he eventually grabbed on to the um rope ladder He had tied his grab bag onto um, some sort of, he clipped it onto the rope ladder uh, and then he lost because he felt like he was losing grip. And he eventually did lose grip and he tried to bite onto the rope ladder with his mouth and he ended up as he fell tearing out his two front teeth. Um meanwhile Max is hanging on with one hand to this the bottom shelf or the bottom uh, rung of the ladder uh, and he feels his grip going but he doesn't have anything to tie on to the, the ladder and he actually falls into the sea and he's getting swept down the side of the tanker and out the, basically out the back of it Um and he's swimming like crazy and Chris describes it like that he, he sees nothing but like focus and determination in Max's face as he's trying to get back to this tanker that's moving away and Max describes it as that literally with his last stroke of our last bit of energy he could muster he reached and there was a trailing line of rope um left out of left or been thrown out of the boat by the crew and he um he grabbed it with his last um effort And eventually he got pulled um, in by the crew and up. And the two of them were saved somehow. Um, (laughs) So they posted some photos there recently on of the like almost like from a almost like i want to say a cctv of the deck of the boat and the rescue and it happening and you can kind of see the crew on the deck and then just over the side you can kind of see from the angle of the the photos um one of them hanging on i think it was max i'm not sure um before it all went wrong for him but it's just like i mean it's hard to even fucking imagine what it must have been like to to experience that um and it turns out that that boat was going to Rio de Janeiro. <laughs> uh, and at one stage, I remember afterwards talking to the lads, they showed me a photo of the two of them in uh, Rio de Janeiro airport. After arriving, I think they spent like two weeks on this thing going across the Atlantic. Um, and the both were in like jumpsuits belonging to the crew uh, in the airport waiting to fly home. And Thankfully, they had their grab bags. Um because i've heard stories of before so grab bag basically is what people use um or what people put together with all the essentials and it it is what it does what it says in the tin it's like the last thing you grab or what you grab as you're leaving that boat and it has like credit card passport, cash water chocolate you know just the essentials to survive basically and if and when you do make it to land that you have identity because there's all sorts of stories about people being rescued from ocean rowing boats in the past and, you know, turning up to places like Gabon and not a stitch of clothing, never mind a passport or cash and then trying to get back to wherever they're from, Britain or America so the lads, thankfully, uh, had their grab bags but, uh, yeah, the uh, the most incredible story it has a happy ending thankfully not only did chris and uh, max obviously get home safe and sound fully intact bar two front teeth but um, chris two years later went back to the race in a pair called resilience x resilient x excuse me with his friend dave durnham and not only did he uh, rode the atlantic but he set a new world record, or they set a new world record by eight minutes. <laughs> I mean, it's just fairy tale stuff, uh, and they had to uh, follow the race closely. And um, I know that. I mean, that is just me even saying that or it just even those words they just don't do justice so hard they had to work for that and the the trials and tribulations and the decisions uh they had to make to um be able to even get close to that world record never mind break it so um yeah pretty uh, pretty incredible story um and that was you know that was the night of day 8 day 9 and as i sta- said at the start it was the wildest conditions the race had seen in 10 years but like none of us obviously knew that Um, we were just out there basically in survival mode trying to deal with what was coming at us and trying to decipher this uh, new world we decided to live in for a little while Um, and it was only that kind of I started I think it was a day or two after that you know, I get on the phone or there'd be the odd text come in, and I heard that um, we'd lost another two boats. So that was four gone already, and we were only nine days into the race. You know, by chatting to my parents or friends or the odd texts through onto the phone, it was just you started to kind of piece together that this wasn't the normal year for the Talisker Whiskey Atlantic Challenge. This was uh, an exceptionally tough year weather-wise um unusually none of the weather was into us it, it was all um pushing us along in the right way but it was still cr- creating these um really kind of sketchy uh, conditions that if you were a novice which we all were i don't know if anyone was repeating that year in the race um, but if you were a novice that you know you didn't really have any experience with, so they were still um, dangerous and they were still extreme conditions for you, but they were just ones that were pushing you in the right direction. You started to see that this year's race was exceptionally difficult weather-wise and this day day nine was formative for me in my journey in that it it just from that moment of clarity and well realization and clarity and then ownership of it and raising of standards it just set this foundation Or this base that I was never going to go below again. I was never going to cut corners. I was going to be incredibly vigilant and diligent in everything I did. And if it took a day to do something and I had to sit on the boat for a day to do it and do no rowing. uh, I was going to do it. Um, And who's to know, who's to say what that mindset and that attitude and those actions did for the rest of my race because it's such a fucking dangerous place out there and if you are not if your standards are not to the level you know they can be and demand they can be of yourself if you are sloppy if you are lazy in your actions and in your thinking and in your attitudes um well, you are compromising your safety and I'm not out there to do that. I am out there to experience life on the edges of my existence and to broaden those edges by learning and experiencing time and um, moments of life at those edges. So thank you, I. Thank you, storm, whatever you are called. You helped me learn more about myself. And that is the biggest thing that I can get from these experiences. That is life on the edges. It shows up good shit that you love about yourself and loads of bad shit. (laughs) That you ain't so enamored by. But it's just information. And it's what you do with that information that's important. Do you hide it? Do you run from it? Do you avoid it? Or do you accept it? Or do you change it? And I decided there and then I was going to change it. And that's that That like beautiful clarity that a very simple life of survival and, ex- and just existing can give you just helps you use those moments after like in life after you've got off this row so it helped me there and it still stands to me today I still know um, that that moment is something I can always summon um, or that day or what I went through all the processes and you know I can see it very clearly and then I can use that kind of time frame and the actions and the outcome of it to um, impose it or superimpose it over different areas where I'm struggling in my life and go okay well yeah this worked before let's do that so basically it's pretty simple you recognize your issue you take fucking ownership on it and you change it (laughs) and you raise your standards and you keep doing that Um, and you know having that having that moment as a very clear strong powerful um, lived experience and um, something i can reference moving forward and have done and will do i'm sure until i put me in the grave uh, and you know what that has just been reinforced and reinforced in its power um, when i have used it when i have employed it that is it for day nine I hope you guys enjoyed the story my story of that day and the kind of insights and learnings and my experience of day nine and my first storm on the Atlantic I hope you also enjoyed the stories of the two Omers from Egypt um, Team O2 and Team Tenzing, Max and Chris from the UK and their incredible story And I do owe Max an apology because I said it was Chris who uh, came back and rode the Atlantic with his friend Dave when it was actually Max, excuse me, uh, Max, Max Torp, who has become a very good friend. And um, yeah, I do apologize for giving Chris credit for your world record. Um, I do know Chris has plans to take on the atlantic again himself so i'm sure it's only a matter of time before he completes that that endeavor but uh yeah it was max torp and dave uh, durnham who uh, set the world record of 37 days uh last year in resilient x make sure to go and check out not make sure but if you'd like to go um and hear more about that uh, Chris and Max did a TEDx talk in Tunbridge Wells, I believe, called um, Fire and Water. And it's a incredible account, obviously, in much more detail than I went into, and first-person experience of what they went through. Uh, and it's brilliant, and you get it on YouTube, so check that out. And also, if you get um, a moment, check out uh, Beyond the Raging Sea by... Uh, the story of the two Omers and everything they went through and i will also uh, i'm telling I'm telling you guys to do it and i haven't even watched it so i will also check that out and um and get a, a bit more insight into what they went through in that crazy day and i suppose it might give you a little bit more context around you know what i was going through as well so yeah it'd be nice thing for everyone to do and before i close out this um episode just want to mention an Irish guy by the name of Alan Conville, who um, I met on Aconcagua, actually, in Argentina when I was climbing climbing down there. He was in um, a group um, that was uh, like a week ahead of my group and we were going up and they were coming down. And I didn't really meet him, it was a very quick hello, but um, his friend John Fern was in my group. So they were chatting away and you know, John mentioned that uh, he had done some mountain biking with Alan. And uh, Alan contacted me this week, um, uh, he sent me through a blog post on um, something he... Completed an incredible, I was just blown away by it when I was reading it. So I wanted to share it with you guys. And there's also a kind of a bit of a, a shameless plug for me because Alan um, follows or has uh, instigated some of the four controllables into his training. So uh, I was kind of a little bit, uh, what would you say, proud. Uh, even though I had nothing really to do with his achievement, but, um, yeah, he sent me through the blog post and he mentions the four controllables in it. And, and what he did was, uh, he set a Guinness world record for the greatest vertical ascent in 48 hours. So listen to this, <laughs> like I said, this blew me away. Um, in 48 hours, he, he found a hill in Wales with a 9% gradient, if I remember from reading his blog post. And he cycled it 169.61 times in 48 hours. That's an elevation gain of 30,321.18 meters. So it's over three times the height of Everest and yeah and quite a bit. Distance he covered in forty eight hours was six hundred and seventeen point seven three kilometers and he burned twenty-three thousand calories. Twenty-three one hundred and fifty twenty three thousand one hundred and fifty two calories. Now they're incredible numbers obviously and it's it's a Guinness World record. It's an incredible achievement. Really like I mean top peak performance stuff and to have the four controllables mentioned in there is, um, is amazing. Um, uh, which is kind of my, for those of you who don't know, it's something that I have kind of learned and fashioned and packaged as a, a mental strength and resilience, uh, method that I have, you know, through my kind of 23 years of rugby and now, you know, um, peak performance adventuring, exploring. is yeah, basically what I have figured out I've been doing or trying to do or just improved on over all that time. And I started to kind of put it out there for people to use and in their own endeavours. So that, that's like, what can I say? It's lovely to hear it been used in, so, in something like that. But what really blew me away about this... um world record and this uh, effort and this uh, endeavor was the sleep. So on night one of the 48 hours, he slept for 20 minutes only. And in night two, he slept once at half two in the morning. He called it a micro nap for five minutes. And that is all he slept in 48 hours. And he was In the 48 hours, he cycled for 46 hours and six minutes. (laughs) And I'm a little bit worried about what I'm going to do on the Atlantic when I, you know, uh, me and Gussie um, in Project Empower, when we roll back around the sleep deprivation, um, when we're rowing two hours on, two hours off, 24 hours a day i wonder what sort of effect that'll have on me. When I when I hear Alan talk about the power of a micro nap and in five minutes it was enough to get him to reboot his body and mind, I'm just, I'm literally, I'm literally, you know, inspired in awe. I'm like surprised to hear it. Uh, I've struggled a little bit with sleep deprivation myself in the past, and it's always been a, a big battle for me. Um And to hear stuff like that is, you know something i hugely believe in is if one human can do it so can you and to hear that sort of stuff that's why i kind of call it inspiring so fair play alan amazing 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 achievement and um yeah i suppose a little bit proud to hear i played an absolutely or my my method played an absolutely minuscule <laughs> part in it but played a, a part in it none the same fair play and last thing i wanted to touch on is next week i am doing a question and answer bonus kind of episode or whatever you want to call it of this so currently i have quite a few questions in that have come in over the last few weeks so if you want to uh, get yours in like early next week Once you listen to this, uh, I'll be doing it on, I think it'll go out on the Friday of this week, as you say. So if you're listening to this, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, uh, get your questions in. You can, most people have come through Instagram through either the Deep Roots podcast Instagram page, just message there or directly to me, which is Owlstock, Owl, A-U-L-D underscore stock. Um, you can also go through my website. There's contact forms there, or through Facebook. Wherever you kind of follow along to this thing, if you want to get a message in uh, or a question in uh, for that bonus episode, that Q and A, ping it in there quickly. And then if not, it'll go into the next time we do one of those bonus Q and A questions, which is you know a few weeks from now. So uh yeah, if you'd like to support the show, the usual jargon: uh, subscribe, follow rate leave a little review you can actually put questions into the reviews on apple podcasts i believe as well so that could be another place um and uh yeah have a great week keep striving for more from yourself cheers